You know, it's been said that you never forget your first love. And I have found that personally to be true. I have never forgotten my first love. And uh, this may be somewhat controversial, but this morning I want to introduce you to my first love. (laughs) You laugh. But this was my first love, a 1970 Volkswagen Beetle. I bought it my uh, junior year in high school, paid cash for it, and I uh, drove it through the rest of high school and uh, throughout my years up at UT Austin. And I've got to tell you, it was one sweet car. But uh, the problem with my first love is I spent too much time and too much money on it. As you can see, I added uh, mag wheels all the way around, wide tires, hijacker air lifters, uh, Porsche exhaust, her shifter, get this, an eight-track <laughs> stereo tape deck with a headphone jack. I was, a, I was ahead of my time. Um, my oldest brother, I loved it. I, I wish you could see, I had a picture from the front to really get the front profile of it because my, my older brother said that whenever he saw it come down the street, he said it with those wide tires that looked like a crab coming down the street. So uh, he affectionately nicknamed it the Red Crab. Yeah. And over those four years at UT, uh, obviously I made countless trips between Austin and uh, my parents' home back in Dallas where, where I grew up. And I always enjoyed those three-hour trips. You know, it was my time where I'd plug in the headphones. I know I wasn't supposed to do this, but, uh, you know, it was my time to, you know, listen to Chicago and Led Zeppelin and ZZ Top. And I tell you, man, those trips were, uh, they were sweet. They were as sweet as the car. But especially I loved the trips home from UT, heading home for Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays with family. Uh, However, one of those trips was not so enjoyable. Um, It was my, I think it was my third year at UT. Uh, I was finished finished up the uh, the fall semester, headed home for Christmas. I had a final exam on Saturday afternoon, which was kind of, you know, like whoever gives an exam on a Saturday afternoon. I always got the last times that they could give an exam. I don't know. I, th- I just felt like they had it out for me. So it was late su- Saturday afternoon, and, and I jumped in the car, had it packed, and I was headed to Dallas. And I was trying to get to Dallas in time for uh, my parents had this, uh, they threw, always threw this Christmas party every year where us kids, and uh, I'm one of six kids, but we, could, uh, we would invite all of our friends, and it was just a great, great uh, way to kind of welcome everybody home from college and and just kick off our Christmas. So I was trying to get home in time for that that party at my parents' house. And um, the trip was going fine until I got north of Temple. It was somewhere between Temple and Waco. And, you know, there are those little towns, Troy, Lorena, I don't know, uh, Bruceville, Eddie. Some of you may be from those little towns. Um, But at one of those towns, near one of those towns, I got a flat tire, and it was on one of my rear tires, which you don't carry around a spare that, you know, is this wide, so I had no spare. Mind you, it's late Saturday afternoon, and uh, I just limped into one of those little towns and was fortunate enough to find on the side of the highway along the access road, there was a garage Uh, Of course, you know, they primarily worked on farm equipment, but they were able to take off the tire, uh, take it off the rim, patch it, put it back on, and uh, they sent me on my way, although I I lost about an hour in the trip. So I had no time to spare. By the time I reached Dallas, it it was already dark, and, uh, you know, the Dallas skyline, as you come in south of there, that was lit up on the horizon, and... um, it happened again. Another flat tire, only it was on the other rear tire. And I pulled over to the side of the highway, and I was so frustrated. I was so mad that I took my fist and I just hit it against the windshield. 
And guess what happened? <laughs> that windshield just crazed all the way across. It just cracked into millions of people's pieces. Stayed intact, but it was almost like you were looking through a windshield that was covered by ice. I mean, I could see nothing out the windshield. And uh, I surprised myself. Uh, I, I surprised myself not only by uh, the cracked windshield, but I surprised myself at the explosiveness uh, of my anger. Well, I had to walk to a, uh, find the closest payphone. You know, there were no cell phones in that day. And anyway, I called my parents' house just hoping that my mom and dad wouldn't answer the phone. And my older brother, Pete, answers the phone. And I said, Pete, you got to come help me. And of course, you know, my parents live in North Dallas. This is on the south side of Dallas. So he's probably a good 45 minutes to an hour away. And I said, I, I need you to come pick me up. And um, I told him what happened. But more than anything else, I need you to not tell mom and dad where you're going or why you're going there. And so Pete came and got me. We left the car there at the side of the highway. And uh, we, I made it to the party probably about two hours late. Uh, went back the next day and retrieved the car. But I recall that incident like it was yesterday. That uncontrolled short burst of anger that caused not only damage to my car, it cost me a lot of money, it inconvenienced people. Uh, my anger proved to be very costly. And today we're going to look at an incident in the life of David that would have proved to be extremely costly. Costly not only to David, costly not only to the lives of individuals, but costly to you and me as well today had his anger not been thwarted, had his anger not been given the opportunity to give full vent. Why study the life of David in this six-part series that we're doing? Well, we know that Paul says over in Romans 15 that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It's written for our instruction, and it's written that we might have perseverance, and that through that perseverance that you and I might gain the encouragement and the hope of pressing on. Why study the life of David? David is mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament character. He's mentioned a total of 59 times in the New Testament. There are more chapters in the Bible devoted to David's life than any other Old Testament character. A total of 66 chapters devoted to David's life. David's biography is the longest of any other Old Testament biography. And it's said in Acts, Luke says that David found favor in God's sight. David found unmerited favor, grace in the eyes of God. And Jesus himself is referred to as the son of David some 14 times in the synoptic gospels, the city of Jerusalem itself being referred to as the city of David. David was Israel's greatest king. He was a great warrior, a man of wisdom, a good friend, loyal support, and he had a father's heart. And the Davidic covenant itself is God's promise that Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will one day physically, physically return to sit on David's throne here on the earth. But David is the only character in Scripture who is referred to as a man after God's own heart. I think it's worthy studying the life of David. And so it is that the title of our series, A Heart After God, David in the Psalms. 
Chuck Swindoll says in his book, David, a man of passion and destiny, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? Seems to me it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means caring about the things that God cares about. It means caring about principles as much as precepts. It means that nothing in your relationship with God is insignificant. It means that when it comes to God, there is no detail that is insignificant or unimportant. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're sensitive to the things of God. And the best proof of having a heart for God is obedience to God. So why is it then that we, alongside the life of David, study the scripture, the Psalms? Well, David is credited with authoring some 70 to 73 of those Psalms, depending on the scholar you read. And the glimpses of David life, David's life are found in 1 and 2 Samuel, as well as 1 Chronicles. But the glimpses of David's heart are found in the Psalms. The first being historical narrative, the second being poetic literature. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Will Davis said that we are seeing David's heart through the lens of the Psalms. Something that David Wilkinson and Larry Libby say in their book, Talk Through Bible Personalities. God gifted David with an ability to turn his soul inside out. Isn't that beautiful? As no one before or since, David was able to record his innermost thoughts in both word and music. David wrote many of his psalms during those difficult years, songs which enable you to look into his heart, feel his anguish, and hear his whispered prayers. In the Psalms, you can find hope and joy in the nearness of God, even though the world seems to be collapsing around you. Whatever your emotion, whatever your frame of mind, you can plunge into the Psalms and find a soulmate. You can find your own personal struggles so clearly expressed. It often seems as if you're reading your own diary. You can find words and prayers that give expression to your deepest longings. It's no wonder that one of you approached me this week and let me know that how much you've appreciated the fact that we are looking at David in the Psalms because you yourself read the Psalms every day. Is it any wonder why? So let's take a look at Psalm 40. And by the way, let me give a little disclaimer here. When it says the title of my message is Word from the Wise, Pastor John Gordon, (laughs) that was not intended. Get over it. Let's look at Psalm 40, or let's look at a portion of Psalm 40, because we are not going to wade through the entire psalm this morning. But here in Psalm 40... We ask the question, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? And David says in Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. What is it that David is saying here that he learned? He is telling us that he learned patience and waiting. It says here that he learned to trust in the Lord. It says here that he learned obedience to the Lord. 
It says here that he learned to have a teachable spirit. One of those teachable moments for David came as he refers to here when he was in the pit of destruction. What is he referring to there when he talks or refers to the pit of destruction or the miry clay? He's talking about the hard places in life. He's talking about those unexpected, those curveballs that come along in every one of our lives, be it issues of health or issues of finances or issues of relationships or issues of you fill in the blank. We all experience the pit of destruction of our lives. And it's usually in the pit where God utilizes or takes advantage of those teachable moments for us. John Maxwell, in a humorous way, talks about the pit. He says, a man fell into a pit and could not get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, well, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in that pit. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how he fell in the pit. A newspaper reporter wanted an exclusive story on his pit. A fundamentalist said, if you had been saved, you would never have fallen into that pit. And a Wesleyan said, you were saved, and you still fell in that pit. A charismatic said, just confess that you're not in that pit. A realist came along and said, now that's a pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. An IRS agent asked him if he was paying taxes on his pit. A county inspector asked if he had a permit to dig the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man reach down and took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. David is in one of those pit moments. How was it that he learned to wait patiently for the Lord? What incident was it possible in his life to teach him to wait patiently on him? And though we don't know for sure, perhaps it was through an incident like the one that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 25, the incident involving Nabal and his wife Abigail. And the Lord used a wise woman to caution David to control his anger and to not take matters into his own hands. Let's turn then to 1 Samuel chapter 25. You know, the background here is that uh, Saul is king, that David in his 10 years of fleeing from Saul is uh, with his band of uh, men in the wilderness fighting uh, Israel's enemies and protecting sheep herders in the area uh, from roving marauders. Uh, during the time of sheep shearing, it was customary for the owner of the sheep to share some of their profit with those who protected them, like David and his men. You know, um, many of you know that I did about 20 years of high school ministry. I guess that explains why I am the way I am today. Um, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And over those 20 years, um, we would... Uh, we take uh, kids camping uh, at Big Ben. As a matter of fact, Brett Jenkins was one of my kids and was on our very first Big Ben trip. If you can imagine uh, Brett Jenkins as a kid. Um, <laughs> he's lost more hair than I have. <laughs> 
But on those big van trips, one of the things that we loved to do was uh, we could drive the vans down near the, uh, uh, the water's edge of the Guadalupe River, and you could park the vans there on the U.S. side and hike down a short trail, and there on the side of the river would be uh, some of the Mexican nationals who would come across and had a little john boat there. Of course, you had to pay them, and they would take you across the river, and then on the other side, uh, they had burrows, and uh, you could pay them, and you could ride the burrows into the little town of Boquillas. Uh, there wasn't much in the town of Boquillas, but it was a great, great adventure. Well, one year when we went and we parked the vans down there on the U.S. side, I was approached by um, um, one of the Mexican nationals. They were, this was pre-9-11, so there was uh, coming and going. As I understand, they've closed that activity off. But one of the uh, one of the Mexican nationals on our on the, on the U.S. side, he approached me and said, uh, offered to watch our vans for five dollars, and, and I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not paying anybody five dollars to watch our vans, and and uh, so I proceeded down the trail, and then the thought crossed my mind. I thought, what kind of problem might we encounter when we return? because we didn't pay this guy five bucks to watch our vans. And so I scooted back up the trail, found the guy, gave him a five-dollar bill. I was happy. You know, you, you could call that a protection racket, right? <laughs> Little insurance is what I called it. But that's what David and his men were providing the sheep herders in that day, was providing them with protection, and in David's day, it was a sign of a, a, an act of gratitude for the sheep, the owner of the sheep, to then share some of the profits with those who, who provided that protection. And David and his men had provided that protection for a sheep owner, uh, a wealthy sheep owner by the name of Nabal. Um, so David thinks it's only fair then to go make requests of Nabal for some provision for his men. And so let's look uh, beginning in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25. And let's meet Nabal and his wife Abigail. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. It was just a few miles away. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. So what does it say here? What do we learn about Nabal? Well, we learn that he's a wealthy individual. But we also learn that it says that he is surly or the Hebrew word means hard or stubborn or belligerent or even bad-tempered. And it also says that he is mean. The he In the Hebrew, it means evil and dishonest in his dealings. But note this uh, later on in verse 25, we learn that the man's name, Nabal, actually means fool. It means fool. And in the scriptures, it says both explicitly and implicitly that it is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. And so Nabal is a man who is living as if God does not exist. Now he's contrasted though with his wife, Abigail. And notice that she is characterized as being a woman who is intelligent or that she has good understanding, uh, that she's beautiful, that she's beautiful in form. This woman is attractive both inside and out. So what happens? David sends his request to Nabal, continuing on in verse 4 says that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace 
be to all that you have. Now I heard that you have shears, uh, that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel, referring to the protection that David and his men had provided. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. So David is down in the wilderness. By the way, David is down there with his 600 men. And he sends 10 men up to Carmel to greet Nabal. And he, his men greet them politely. And his men point out that, you know, we provided you good protection. We set a wall around you. And as a matter of fact, nothing was missing. We, we, we didn't steal anything from you. And so it is that, as is the custom, we are requesting provision from you for the us down in the wilderness, providing protection for others. And David's men wait for Nabal's reply. Nabal answers David's men in verse 10. It says that, but Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? You know, Nabal is, he's a little belligerent here, isn't he? He uh, mockingly says, you know, who, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And notice, too, that his selfish attitude is really coming out in the number of times that you see the words I and my and mine. He's a selfish individual. And so it is that he gives David's servants their answer. And the servants deliver Nabal's answer back. David's servants deliver Nabal's answer back to David. Verse 12, so David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. I wonder how David is going to respond. You know, this is the same David that has exercised the restraint when Saul tried pinning him to a wall with a spear. And will he respond the same way? It says that David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. And so it says that each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And note this. About 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage or the supplies. David, I think it's an understatement to say here, overreacted. David is livid. David is angry. And David's Anger in this moment is absolutely explosive. You know, it's like David is saying, let's kill that fly on the wall with a shotgun. As his immediate reaction is, gird on your swords. Two-thirds of you, 400 men, we're going to go do business with Nabal. And you know, it's not like David is going to have a conversation with Nabal. But we learn later on that he is out to entirely eliminate Nabal 
and his household. David's anger has taken control of his thinking. And as it's taken control of his thinking, it's taken control of his actions. You know, in that movie, Anger Management, Jack Nicholson's character, Dr. Buddy Rydell, an anger management therapist, says, temper's the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it. Let me repeat that. Temper's the one thing you can't get rid of by losing it. Let's talk about anger for a moment. And you know, anger is a God-designed emotion, is it not? I mean, take for instance the number of times that we read of the anger of the Lord, the anger of God, God's anger, the Lord's anger, God's wrath, the Lord's wrath. Anger is one of God's emotions. And yet, I would say that anger is one of God's last resorts. When we see God in the prophets pronouncing his woe on Israel for their disobedience, it's his last gasp. It's like God wants to do anything but bring judgment. And yet, in our disobedience... There are times when, figuratively speaking, we push God into the corner, that we put his back against the wall. And so it is that we have seen throughout the history of Israel, and even in our own lives, those times where God is showing his anger, his wrath. Anger is a God-designed emotion And you and I, being created in the image of God, have to deal with that anger emotion ourselves. Now, let me say this, too, is is that there is both righteous anger, which is always the case with God, and yet there is also unrighteous anger, which more times than not has to do with us. You know, the scriptures tell us, uh, be angry, yet do not sin. It doesn't tell us to not be angry, but it says, don't allow that anger to become sinful. And Jesus himself, the example of that, as he drove the money changers out of the temple for taking advantage of those who had come to purchase the sacrificial animals and that they were gouging them. It was righteous anger as he drove them out of the temple and said that you're making my father's house a den of robbers. So when is it that anger becomes sinful? It becomes sinful when it results in uncontrolled behavior. You know, as I think back, I played uh, football up through my sophomore year in high school, and my ninth grade coach, um, and I won't name his name because he may still be living today, but he was a short, stocky man and uh, real fair-skinned, and um, and he had a temper. And and we never called this to his face, but our nickname for him was Pinky. Because whenever he got mad, he would turn literally pink. <laughs> but I remember uh, that after games Saturday night, and you know, you were issued the the uh, uh, the game jersey on Thursday, um, and then you had to uh, turn in the game jersey on yet washed on Monday morning, and um, that that was the that was the routine. And I remember one day that. Pinky, we're out on the practice field, and he comes marching out on the field. And, and, and he had a little limp to him as he came. And, uh, and, and he, you could always tell when he was mad because it, it looked like he was smoking a cigar. But it wasn't a cigar. It was his tongue hanging out the side of his mouth. And, and boy, I mean, he came out, and he had, he had this arm ready to just deck somebody. And he made a beeline 
for one of the players on our team, and that's exactly what he did. Is that I mean, he decked that guy, and our he's he's laying there on the ground, and the coach jumps on the guy. <laughs> he's laying there on his back in full gear, and and the coach is shaking him and hitting him on the ground, saying, "Where's that jersey? Where's that jersey?" Because one of the managers reported he didn't turn in his jersey, and with that. Running out of the locker room was the manager with a jersey saying, Coach, I found the jersey. I found the jersey. (laughs) But there was never a word of apology. There was never that acknowledgement that I was wrong, that I was uncontrolled in my anger. And so now it is that whenever I think of that coach, I think of a quick-tempered, out-of-controlled man. You see, anger becomes sinful when it hurts people physically. And not only that in high school, I worked for a man at a full-service gas station who was a quick-tempered man. As a matter of fact, whenever he went into one of his rages, I would find myself just trying to look busy emptying empty trash cans. But he did himself harm because he eventually suffered a heart attack and died. Uncontrolled anger. When does anger become sinful? When it persists and results in bitterness. When we prolong communication, you know, there's both aggressive anger and there's that passive anger where we get quiet until the other one finally asks, is anything wrong? It's sinful when we hurt people emotionally and spiritually. And it's sinful when we become vengeful. And that's what David was doing here. David was becoming vengeful. And what causes sinful anger? Well, obviously the fall, when sin entered into the world, and it distorted our emotion of anger We've had poor examples, some of which I've shared with you today, and maybe you grew up in a home where there was the poor example of how not to handle anger. Uh, Anger can become uh, a a habit to us. Um, It can wind up being abuseful, abusive. And I think a lot of times anger has to do with control issues. You know, we think we are so control of our lives, and yet when we come face to face with the reality that we're not, that can drive us to fly off the handle in anger. You know, either you're going to control your anger or your anger is going to control you. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, because of Christ, we no longer are slaves to sin. Sin is no longer your master. And see, if you're here today and you're apart from Jesus Christ, sin is your master. You cannot do otherwise. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he went to a cross to pay a penalty for your sin that you could not pay for yourself. Sin then is no longer your master. You no longer have to obey. You can choose to do the right thing. Let's get back to our story. In verse 14, Nabal's servant tells Abigail what has happened. Says, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. And yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day. All the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. You see that? One of Nabal's servants has come to Abigail 
not to Nabal because he says that he's unapproachable. This guy's out of control and he pleased with Abigail. Please, please comply with the request of David's men. And so it is that Abigail acts in wisdom. Verse 18, Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. I think this is the first catering service that we see in Scripture. And she said to her young men, go on before me. I'm, I'm right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Here, Abigail acting in wisdom to do what she could. You know, she could have seized this opportunity to go ahead. Let this guy be done away with. We already know that he's a difficult person to live with. And yet what she does is that she is going to actually save him and his household. It says in verse 20, it came about as she was riding on her donkey and came down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried, dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She puts her own life at risk. She humbles herself right there before David. Is this a woman of wisdom? You bet. In doing so, she appeases David's anger. Verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Let them die. Let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in your days. How did she know this? How did she know that David was the next in line to the throne of Israel. Abigail speaks a word from the wise. In verse 30, it says that when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, she expresses her faith. And in verse 31, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maid servant. She expresses her wisdom. David heeds this word from the wise. And in doing so, David demonstrates his teachable spirit. He changes his demeanor. And notice too in verse 34, who David acknowledges that this word of wisdom is from. God himself. Nevertheless, as the Lord of God, Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you. Unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. David's obedience to this word from the wise demonstrates that he truly is a man after God's heart, doesn't it? In Second Chronicles, it says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are completely his. 
The scriptures, as we said before, characterize David as a man after God's own heart. And what that means is that David's heart was completely God's. That David had a sensitive heart for God. And as we close today, I want to close with a question to you. Is your heart completely God's? Do you have a sensitive heart for God? And if so, great. But if not, then why not? Why not? You know, today as we celebrate the Lord's table, I go back to Psalm 40, where David would continue to write, not only of himself, but also of a prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. As the men come to pass the elements, one of the greatest demonstrations of our love for God, of having a heart for God, is our obedience to him. And so it is that as we come to the Lord's table today, we do so in obedience. Not an obedience that is out of compulsion, but an obedience that is motivated by a love, a thankfulness, a gratitude for what he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. Thank you.
The Lord Jesus Christ, in the night that he was betrayed with his disciples in the upper room, he took the bread and broke it. And holding it up, he said, this is my body. This represents my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, it says that he took the cup. And he said, this is, the, this is the representation of my blood, of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Take and drink of it, and as often as you do, you proclaim the Lord's death. Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are so grateful for our Savior, who in his obedience gave of himself, of his very life, and experiencing separation from you in his death, that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly, that we might be no longer slaves to sin, but friends of God. And so it is, Father, that we proclaim today our love for our Savior, our love for you. And we do so praying gratefully in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. May the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and remember, it's always grace before there can be peace, be with you all. Have a great day. Amen.